Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Huge welcome to Lex Veldhaus, our very first guest on the grid. Lex has been crushing poker since 2005, and right now he's super active on Twitch where he plays multi-table tournaments for over 160,000 followers and up to tens of thousands of simultaneous viewers. He's also a PokerStars pro and recently debuted Lex Live. Known for his super aggressive style, I was sure he'd have plenty of potential hands to help us start filling out our grid. Lex, thank you so much for joining me on the grid and talking to me about a very important hand, the King Four Off. Hey, Jen, yeah, it's, uh, it's really nice to be here and it's uh, really cool that you uh, wanted me on as a kickoff guest, so very, uh, very honored for that. Yes, you're the, you're the perfect guy. Um, <laughs> as I know you like to play lots of hands, um, can you set up the, the King Four hand that you're bringing to the table, the very first hand combo that's gonna be filled out in our grid? Yeah, it's actually a, why I immediately thought about that hand is because the hand kind of became a meme. Um, it's a hand that I've uh, played during an EPT and uh, uh, the hand goes as follows. Uh, I open it like 200, 400, I, uh, I 2.5x, I make it 1,000 with king for offsuit uh, from middle position, you know, great decisions all around. Um, and I get three bets uh, by a German guy uh, to like 3,500 and I end up going all in for like 12 or 14k. And he tank calls me with kings, um, and he kind of like he, he slow rolled me. He pretended to not slow roll, but then he slow rolled me, and he kind of gave his friend a fist bump. And he said in German, "Did you see what I do to the Dutch guy?" So I kind of lost it. I but the um, the funny thing about that hand for me is that it just kind of symbolizes uh, how restless I was back then, like how immature my strategy was, how not suited I was for tournaments you know and just looking back on that and specifically there are just so many things that go through my head just I just look at myself and I think you idiot what year was that hand in oh that has to be 2007 I think something something around there 2007 2008 maybe so this was just a few years after you started playing poker I think yeah EPT London in uh in season two was my first EPT and I started playing a bunch and uh this is yeah this is only a few years after so this king forehand I, you didn't get there I take it uh no no I definitely did not get there it was an early trip home <laughs> and was there strategic rationale for this or were you just really kind of like annoyed and not in the mood to play wanting to play cash games after was it pure emotion or was there like 90 percent emotion and 10 percent strategy my, my strategy just had kind of like a general angle um I just really like to play post-flop. I really like to put a lot of pressure and I really like to play more odds. And, um, you know, I was pretty successful at cash games back then. And I think it was a combination of not wanting to 
just too much. I didn't really respect tournaments, you know. I just didn't think there was a whole lot of depth to them when you were short stacked and stuff, which I completely came back from uh, uh, that opinion. But um, I loved cash better. Uh, I kind of wanted to just like bink a tournament or have something, you know, on, on a list or an achievement list or something. I, I think one of one of the problems also was they were playing play during the day, and I like to grind at night. So they didn't really fit in my schedule that that well, and you know, it's just like. Just an immaturity when I think back about it. You know, I think that poker is all about adjusting, right? If if everybody knows that um, you play aggressive, it's good to play a little bit more tight and just milk your good hands better, right? That, that's how you outplay your opponents. Back then, I wasn't really concerned about that. I just thought, well, if they think I'm aggressive, then if I play twice as aggressive, they won't see that one coming. And I'll still overpower them. And I think a lot of that stuff was kind of going on. And that's why it's so important for me, because it kind of symbolizes the way I used to play poker and how I wouldn't adjust to where I'm much smarter now and I don't really care about being king of the hill all the time. Right. So you're not the only one who is doing things like opening king for off from middle position. This was like something that I think that if you didn't ever open hands like that, people might say like, wow, you're too one dimensional. People always know what your ranges are. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I mean, one thing needs like needs to be very clear because they actually made a whole meme about it after on Poker News. They started interviewing um different people and asking them what to do with King 4 and asked Elke and Gus Hansen and all these players and they all said oh of course instant all in what a good hand you know so uh, people started teasing me about it and you know King 4 is always a fold let, let that be clear so that from the middle position whatever uh, you know there, there's only a few exceptions but I do think that you know sometimes people will ask something about poker and they say like oh my table never folds when I open how can I play poker here, you know? And it's just very easy. You adjust and you only open good hands and you just play them that way. When you got three bet and you decided to go all in, um, what what went into that decision? Do you, I mean, obviously it was so long ago, but was it more like screw that guy or? I... Yeah, it's just kind of like, like always just wanting to have last say or last, you know, the last comments. It's just like, it just felt like backing down to not play a pot. Like if, that that's I think was the best weapon against me. Just leave the door open a little bit, you know. Don't go all in with good hands against me. Just make it like one third of your stack, and I feel like I can get you to fold. And uh, I think that there was definitely uh, going on. Plus, I, I I never every time I started a tournament, if you had like 20k starting chips, um, if I would go down to like 7k, I kind of felt like the tournament was over, um, like it was done, like good effort, but it's done now because. You know, you're short, you're dependent on getting hands and all that stuff. And the weird thing is, I think that really stemmed from just not being prepared enough because now I do know how to short stack and short stacking is actually really relaxing. Like there's there's not really much you can do. You just follow your plan and you really have, you know, it's almost binary. You have two to sit, you, have, you know, you have two options. And I just didn't have that back then. So I think to just kind of like lie to myself about the fact that I wasn't prepared and I, that I just was falling short on knowledge to be able to do good in them uh, i would just kind of solve it with aggression and just kind of felt like oh this was such a good spot and i had to shove there because the guy was weak and you know all this bullshit that's just not true and looking back on it too like the guy i, I still remember that the guy just barely played a hand so you know and then i started telling myself oh but he barely played a hand so he probably abuses that image to raise the most aggressive guy you know it's just all this nonsense uh, that i think were just a result of much deeper lying issues Right, where you just have your emotions and you make sure that your thought process matches what your emotions kind of want you to do anyway. it's If you're smart, it's pretty easy to make that connection usually. 
you're absolutely right you just kind of shape the circumstances to what you want them to be like and and then you act and then you know it the funny thing is is that i think part of the reason uh uh why i was so angry is i, I was doing it the same way after uh, I got busted, you know, I started focusing very much on the fact that he slow rolled me and he was happy that he slow rolled me. And I started talking about that and that I was angry about that. But I think that if you look at it uh, in the core, I just wasn't being honest to myself again, admitting that it was a bad move because clearly the guy is going to show up with a big hand. Um, so then, you know, I'm redirecting my emotions again to just say like, oh, uh, this, this guy slow rolled me and uh, whatever. Instead, I should just I was probably really angry at myself for busting a tournament that way again. And that's a famous clip of you talking to Joey um, Ingram a couple years ago about lying to yourself in poker. Uh, I, I, I watched that recently. And, you know, what do you think was a turning point where you were more introspective and honest with yourself? Now, I should point out you were probably printing money throughout all these years anyway. So was it the fact that you were winning anyway? So why be honest with yourself if you're making lots of money from poker? You're hitting the nail on the head. It's uh, it's it's really after I got humbled a bit in poker that I started looking at different routes and adjustments I needed to make. And you know, you're right. Like if you're just printing in cash games, you play the occasional tournaments, and it's not so much that I like I I really didn't know that I sucked at a big aspect of tournaments because I just thought like short stacking is is kind of you know stupid. Anybody can do it. You wait for hand, but there's so many little intricacies and things that you can do. And you know, uh, as you were well aware of, so. Um, I just kind of never really uh, accepted that part and it's really hard to accept that part if you're just winning a lot in other forms of poker. So after that, I, when poker got a little bit harder, I, I had a big downswing. Just uh, just a few things happened and to that point I was like, alright, you know, um, nobody remembers the bullshit, playtime is over, I need something that I can actually take away from this apart from you know, I think that poker develops you as a person and teaches you a lot of great things, but it's also nice to just have some money left from it and, you know, that you can do something with or invest or at least have a, a profit. So I started taking that more seriously and then I started adjusting more. I also think I just calming down in, in, in general in life uh, really helped me because I was kind of all over the place. Um, uh, not really caring about uh, too many things so as soon as i started like getting a little bit more healthy um you know listening to my friends a little bit more they had a really good influence on me um that that's when i started taking things a little bit more serious and uh i started to adjust strategy and working on mental game more i just realized like you, you don't win if by just thinking that you're doing well or you're playing the way you want to, you win when you actually win. Looking at the positive side of this hand though, even though obviously you wouldn't play that way today and you don't look back fondly on it, I think that a lot of poker players are so afraid of getting embarrassed, especially on the big stages, that they don't make big plays even when they are, um, you know, the, the correct play. Uh, so are you, do you feel like you're kind of immune to embarrassment? Is, and is that actually like a positive in some ways? Uh, like, how did you feel about it when all this like, you know, press with like people making fun of this hand came out? Uh, I really liked it. You know, I, I feel like I'm always pretty opinionated. And I feel like if you open yourself up, you should also be able to take take it, you know. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was really, really funny. Uh, it was actually kind of it was nice because it made it a nice memory too, you know, and you make a great point about kind of people not wanting to do something silly or what they think is bad or, you know, and that that that, that causes people to 
uh, use hindsight reasoning. Oh, you know, if I if I'm and I see it during streaming all the time. If a button opens and I shove 30 big blinds with pocket sixes from the small blinds, uh, you know, you do it 10 times a day. Nobody says anything. And then somebody calls you with tens and you're out. And then it's like, why would you do that with two sixes? Why would you wager 30 big blinds, you know? So if something goes wrong, people just automatically assume it was a mistake. And, you know, with when you talk about ranges and variance and all this stuff, you just can't think that way. Um, so for me, I just trust my plan. I trust my process. I know that, you know, I have a lot to learn and that I'm going to make mistakes. So I, I don't really mind showing them. Uh, I actually think that if you're not embarrassed about it and if you if you control the narrative that way, then it's actually much easier because uh, you don't leave any gaps open for people to take stabs at you either, you know? If somebody says, Lex, I think you're really bad in this spot or you might not win in that field, I can just say, yeah, I know, I say it all the time. Somebody who is easily embarrassed, uh, should they stay away from streaming or do you have like some tips where you're self-conscious, you're embarrassed about making a bad play, um, and obviously you're streaming, which makes it extra difficult because you're playing and trying to interact with people. How does somebody get over that? I think that if you, I mean, it's, it's a process, right? Yeah, like you need to learn things. Like it's really good if you, if you do activities in life or if you have a profession or things that challenge you that will teach you things that will help you develop as a person, um, that will help you overcome stuff. So, you know, not doing something because there might be a bad spot. You're just treating a symptom. You're not really changing anything. So the nice thing about streaming too is when you start, you actually have a small audience. So it's much less intense at the beginning. You know, you have a very controlled uh, narrative or a situation with one or two people that might say something and you can reply to it. And if you say something stupid or respond badly, uh, it's not it's not that big of a deal because it's not to like thousands of people yet. So I think it's actually an excellent chance to kind of grow over uh, certain social anxiety, uh, whatever, um, you know, uh, being easily embarrassed, uh, kind of fear of failing, all that stuff. Uh, so I would actually uh, recommend people <laughs> to stream if they have issues with that. Oh, that's really a great point. Yeah, and probably in the beginning, like some of the people in your audience are also fans of you or, you know, particularly tight with you, might know you from some other social media. So it's probably likely that they'll actually be even more on your team and um, ready to help and support you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's the worst thing is, is when you start acting or when something bad happens or you make a mistake and you just do everything you can to be right, you know, then, then you have a bigger problem. If you bust a tournament and you just say, wow, that was really, really bad, that that goes a long way. That's all you need to do. Like, what is somebody else going to say? Oh, Lex, I think you played the tournament really bad or very poorly. Yeah, I know. I just said it. You know, it's like, it's, and it's almost, uh, it's almost like the Eminem in eight mile tactic. You know, if you just, uh, if you just say the, the, the bad stuff already, nobody can really fire shots at you. Right. Yeah. Great point. I, I have to say that one of my inspirations for this idea was the, the play every hand challenge that a lot of streamers were doing on Twitch. It occurred to me when I heard that play every hand, it could be interpreted both ways. Like it could mean play every hand 100% of the time that you're dealt a hand or play every hand one time. And how do you feel about ideas like that? Uh, people playing every hand um, on their streams, does it in improve someone's poker game while being entertaining or does it just lose money? I have to be a little bit careful like because uh, the one thing I always try to tell people is you don't need to invest that much in poker to get better. 
the best way for instance to uh, uh, like 10 years ago I remember CTS saying something like I wanted to get better from the button so I decided to min raise every single hand that I played if it was unopened because I would get in all these marginal spots with 100% range and battling the blinds and that he got much better at playing uh, buttons like that and that was a super interesting idea but at the same time poker needs to be easy enough to where uh, that's actually still profitable you know if you start losing heaps of money there's no point in doing that but I mean, these days there's so much information, there's so many strategy, training sites, whatever, YouTube videos, people promoting their stables, whatever there is, you know, there's so much information to get out there that I think that if you want to get better, you can just do it that way without uh, investing too much money. Well, I always assumed that the play every hand type thing was more of a gimmick where people would um, just have some fun and show how gambly they are. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I think, uh, I mean, you know, in terms of content, it's great. Like, I have certain, I have one tournament. It's a, it's super small. It's a $7.50 bounty builder, and I go all in every hand. And it's every day, you know, and it's just fun. People kind of start, you know, guessing how many bounties there are and how many bounties I could possibly win and all that stuff. So, you know, there, there's little things that are very important, I think, if you're a content creator, that people know that there's a thing going on, you know, and it's also good to be original because you kind of a lot of the time in content world i think you see that ideas kind of go down the pyramid where people think oh that's a great idea and then they kind of assimilate the idea but they don't make it their own they don't put it in a new jacket it's like doing a song cover you know you have to do it in your own style you can't just do an exact rendition then you're just a cover band and people will get bored very quickly but if you have a really cool acoustic version because you're sick with an acoustic guitar then all of a sudden it'll draw attention because you do something creative with something and especially if people out there are creating content and they're looking up to all these people you know try to make content your own uh, a bankroll challenge can be great but you know a hundred people are doing it so do something with it. Do Put an extra twist in it. Do something that you like. Mix in another idea, that sort of thing. I like that, the, the idea of adding a little twist. Um, now, the bounty builder going all in every hand, uh, I guess in a bounty tournament, an any only tournament, that kind of thing, it's probably not as bad as it would be in a regular tournament. So is that also part of the rationale that it's more strategically viable or is it just like pure fun? No, it's just pure fun. Yeah. It's just like, uh, yeah, yeah, just just the gamble, and it's it's also it's usually near like the the eighty percent uh, point in my session. So it's kind of it's kind of nice to have some laughs, and it's funny how how if you have a, a really bad session, there was like there was one uh, I remember one W Coop day which actually kind of sparked the idea to do it more often for fun. I was stuck like ten thousand uh, dollars of tournaments, and I just I had a I had a very very bad day. Just also you know like nothing was going my way. It was kind of hard. It was slow on Twitch, whatever. And I start going all in in this uh, twenty two dollar scoop bounty builder. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just gonna go all in every hand and and go for it. And I, I won like eight bounties and I knocked people out in the most ridiculous ways and it was so much fun and I, I you know I got so into it where I was like screaming for cards and everything that it completely changed my mood around and I, it felt like one of the best streams ever you know even though I lost tons of money so um, that kind of sparked the idea just to have some fun and not uh, and not take it so serious. I love that. I mean, you got to get back to like some of some of the stuff that um, you loved about poker from the very beginning, like jamming King Four Off. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of adding twists, um, are, what do you think about the seven deuce off game? And should we switch it to the nine three game or the king four off game? <laughs> um, actually, I there we played a game once, and we played we played a seven deuce game, and he collects some money from everybody. You know, as everybody knows, and we also played a nine deuce game, which was really intense. Um, if you made a bluff with nine deuce and you got it through. 
uh, and it, it had to be post flop, so not pre flop raising tickets. But if you if you got it through post flop and you showed nine dues, uh, everybody had to give you nine hundred and twenty dollars. And if you uh, if you had to table it, so you know, anytime somebody got called at the river, we table the hands because of this game. If you got called, you had to pay everybody at the table nine hundred and twenty dollars. So you know, on an eight-handed game, uh, this can get very expensive very quick, and that. That was definitely one of more DJing games, but I think those games are pretty good for poker uh, or for poker games. I think it's definitely a tool to kind of loosen up a tighter game. One game actually that reminds me that you should never play, and I hate it when anybody proposes it on TV, is uh, oh, should we do that? Whenever you play the hand, you have to show one card. Like th- that doesn't do anything. If people want to play loose and have to show like bad cards or you know, it, it just it really destroys the action in the game. Nobody likes that game, especially not recreationals, you know, because they just like to play their hands and not really worry about looking stupid or being embarrassed, all that stuff. So Yeah, um, yeah. I hate it when I when there's a game that people add that actually makes the environment worse. Like an example that I can think of is that when a man plays a ladies' tournament or something like that and everybody starts saying, like, let's put a big bounty on him, let's put a big bounty on him. And I'm like, God, no, that's just going to give them more attention. And yeah. actually, it's going to give them the one thing that you don't want a man to do in a ladies' win- event is to win it all. So yeah. if people are just going nuts trying to bust them, there's like that chance that they could get like a really massive stack. So <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with you. It's the, the best is to just ignore them into non-existence, kind of. Yeah, exactly. But uh, tell me a little bit about your first passion for poker tournaments. It was from starting to do Twitch, right? That's how you really fell in love with uh, MTTs. It's really funny because, you know, Twitch really holds you accountable for uh, what you do, right? It's like there, there's certain there's certain ways people can get big on Twitch or popular or people like watching in general, no matter how big or small the, the channel. Everybody has their thing. Either people are really nice, they're really, they're really funny or they're insanely good at a game, or they're really good at like putting a show on. There's all these different things that you, you know, people are popular for, but um, one thing you'll always get judged on is skill in the game that you're playing. When I first started on Twitch, I just finished like a few elite grinds uh, playing PLO, and I really liked playing PLO. So I started streaming, and I would play 10, 20, or 5, 10 PLO game. I had like 1,500 2K stack, and I thought, well, this is pretty exciting. Nobody's really streaming cash games on Twitch. It's reasonable stakes, you know, whatever. And then somebody in the chat asked me, uh, could you please play the Big 22? And I was just like, what? And they're like, yeah, this is kind of boring. I want to see the Big 22. And then I realized, you know, people, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> people people watching Twitch, they kind of want to follow the journey in something, right? They want to see somebody progressing up the stakes. They want to see somebody win a Fortnite tournament. They want, they want a starting point and an ending point, which is what tournaments provide. So... Uh, more people kept asking me and I thought and then, then I thought okay I'll play tournaments then let's find out and I told everybody I'm absolutely trash at tournaments I haven't played them in six years before that I only knew how to play big stack and um, I, I don't really know but you know just from competitiveness and also wanting to you know improve and do as well as I can and now being more mature about it too and the fact that my audience holds me accountable and I have to be honest to them, right? I can't say like, oh, I don't care about short stacking or I know exactly what to do when I don't. So then I started, you know, researching them more. I got some coaching here and there and I started playing and through playing I improved and friends of mine that were watching the stream that are good players would kind of tell me if I was making like really glaring mistakes and uh, would kind of help me in that regard. And to be honest, like just looking at tournaments from a more technical perspective and learning more about them and learning more short stacking and how you can play with 20 big blinds just made me really, really appreciate the tournaments 
and I started playing against the good regulars, especially when I moved up stakes a little bit. Cash game players always had this thing with tournament players back in the day where they just thought like tournaments much more easy, it's more one dimensional and cash games are crazy and people do all kinds of stuff and it's deep stacked. Cash game players look down on tournament players, I think, uh, in general a little bit. So, But then I saw, wow, these guys play like fucking gangsters, you know, they, they are so tough to play, they put so much pressure. And then I started really respecting uh, the regulars too, and I was I was really amazed at how good some guys were and uh, all the different facets that you know they they could put pressure in and ICM considerations, and that opened up this whole new thing for me where you have all these different strategy situations and you can put people through the ringer when in all different kinds of ways. And you know, there's so many aspects of tournaments. Like I I love tournaments honestly. No, I really love them. Oh, that's so great to hear. Just getting passionate about another aspect of poker. And I guess it is true that it feels like there are less people making fun of tournament players just because so many so many great poker players now are at least uh, playing tournaments as part of their, their diet. You know, another reason for this pod name, The Grid, is to show another side of the same grid that so many poker pros are staring at when they're studying in their off time. And I wanted to ask you about poker theory. Do you think it makes the game more beautiful or more tedious? Um, I used to really think that poker theory, especially uh, hard to say, a correct, like a, a correct number, like eight years ago, I think it made it a lot more tedious. Like people thought that, you know, whenever people started thinking about GTO and whatever, they, they thought it kind of meant not opening yourself up. And, you know, you saw these hands on 510 cash games, six-handed, and it would be button versus big blinds, and it would be queens versus ace-jack with, you know, on a jack-high board, and it would be like 18 big blinds in the middle because people would just check back everything. And it was, it was such an insanely tedious, terrible environment that that's actually what really put me off from online cash games, and that's why I stopped playing them a little bit because the meta game was just really boring. But I honestly think that Poker Theory now is just like, it's almost, you know, the more theory uh, you get your hands on or study or look at or uh, get taught from some people, the more aggressive you need to play. Like every time I get coached or whatever, people just say, oh, uh, you're too tight here. You need to raise more, three bet more this, over bet more turns. So honestly, the way poker theory is now and the way poker theory kind of guides you into playing, it's, it's just you play like an absolute maniac and you play so many hands. So I absolutely love what effect poker theory has on the game right now. That's a great answer. Yeah, I love that. I mean, when I think of the positive, fun side of poker theory, I think about kind of like the clarity that it sometimes gives you in a super complicated game and a super complicated world. But mm -hmm. this other angle about how it can make, make you more aggressive is like, is really fascinating. I mean, actually, the top chess player in the world right now, well, obviously, the top human is Magnus Carlsen. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> AlphaZero, um, the, uh, the DeepMind uh, program that was created a year ago is an incredibly aggressive player, like way more aggressive than any other um, chess program in history. And wow. it's kind of fascinating to watch because we thought that like the previous chess programs were playing close to optimal. And then something comes and plays like 10 times more aggressively than what we thought was optimal. Wow, that's, that must be really exciting too. Like I can't even imagine like a game where you, you know, everybody, uh, imagine like Limit Hold'em, all of a sudden somebody hits the scene and Limit Hold'em completely revigorizes the scene and then everybody's like, whoa, what? You know? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's cool. That's really, that's really cool. 
because they were already the best players in the world. So we kind of trusted that like the best player in the world, okay, Stockfish, these other engines. And now it's like, oh my God, no, there's actually one that's like even higher than that, that's playing like a complete maniac and sacrificing all their pieces. So I see that like parallel in the world of poker as well with like the the overbets and the the wide ranges. I want to go back before we wrap it up to your King Forehand. Bring us back to an EPT in 2007. Like how different was the atmosphere? Oh, that's kind of funny because I, I, that's what I've been giving a lot of thought because that's kind of like the model that I try to shape what Lex Life is and what I want it to be. You know, the EPT, during my first few EPTs, you would be done playing and you would go to the bar and you would order 25 beers and everybody would be sitting there hanging around, uh, having fun. People would meet for breakfast in groups. People would do all kinds of stuff. It was just much more relaxed and uh, it was much more, there was like a, it felt like a big traveling community. It was just madness. And then also because people, you know, obviously made a lot of money in poker, people would do really stupid things. So every EPT, you would just see legendary stuff happening. I remember William Thorson, um, it's a legend from Sweden. He, uh, we're in Barcelona and, you know, all these guys are trying to sell like the hats and uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the beaded necklaces, everything at the beach. And we're drinking with a group of people and he got so frustrated by like getting interrupted or people coming over like do you want to buy a rose he's like you know get all your friends all the people that are selling this stuff get them all here together and then he bought everything for five thousand euros and he just said give us all your shit everything that you have all your glow sticks everything and leave us alone for the rest of the night and he just bought everything and then the whole bar everybody was wearing like these lighted hats glow sticks everything you know like those sort of things would just kind of happen oh god that must have been a great day for them yeah oh that's awesome i love that yeah well i mean i know people also say i haven't been there yet but i people say very great things about run it up reno that it's like this kind of like live atmosphere and that's what you're trying to to create also with lex live what's when's your next uh edition gonna be uh, I did some scouting actually uh, past weekend. I went to some stops in the uh, UK and looked at some things at Ireland. And um, I think there's a big chance that we're going to be doing it there. First one we did in uh, Namur, Belgium. And the reason for that was it's all about community for me. So it really has to be kind of resembling what we do online. And all the people that show up in my channel every day need to have a chance to get there. So it has to be very accessible. So I thought. In the middle of Europe, people can road trip by car if they want to. People can take trains. There's Brussels Airport nearby, all this stuff. But then as people got there and traveling times and train costs and everything, I realized like it really doesn't matter in Europe if you have to fly somewhere. So that's why uh, I'm kind of looking into the UK now. The next one is going to be at the end of this year, somewhere between like the, the last week of September and the first week of December. We just want to make it a biannual event and just never forget that it's about community, people being able to shake hands. That's awesome. And I like that if it's in the UK, that's also going to be a lot easier for us Americans as it's usually just a, you know, a six hour flight away if you're on the East Coast. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, on, uh, on the first edition, we had, you know, somebody from San Diego, somebody from uh, New York was there too, Minnesota. And there's so many more uh, people from America and Canada that would love to come. And I like what you said also about the the community building. One thing, now that I'm a mom, when I can really relate to how valuable time off is to people. If somebody's going to take off a few days to play poker and they've got a work, they've got family, it really has to be um, you know, an experience where they're learning about the game, they have a chance to succeed, they're meeting people, they're having fun. You really kind of want to hit all of the, the bullets, otherwise it 
might not give them the sense that if they played badly or if they don't win, they, they don't necessarily come away with a good feeling. And I yeah. think you can almost guarantee victory. <laughs> What you say is exactly true. Like if somebody goes there for like six or seven purposes, then if poker doesn't work out, they still had a really great time. And that's the thing is you talk about like old DPT is I, when I do play in a tournament stop where I have lots of friends, I, I'm sure you can relate to the feeling that especially if it's not like a super high buy-in, it always feels like kind of win-win because you're either doing well in the tournament or you get to see your old friends and have fun, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, it's, it just becomes, you know, there's just, there's a different reason. It's almost like you bring a budget. If poker doesn't go well, that's fine. It has to be in a way where even if beforehand, you know, the poker's not going to go well, you still would want to go. There will always be small events. I mean, we had tons of 20 and 30 euros sitting goes at Lex Live 1. And that'll be no exception next time because for a lot of people, it will be the first live experience. And I want them to be able to sit down at a table and compete at each other and chat and kind of break the ice. You know, people can still be competitive. People are still had bragging rights when they want to sit and go and all this stuff is really important you know it has a big grassroots feeling there's like I, I don't want to turn it into some event where it's about how much are the guarantees this year are they up from last time like if we have a smaller venue i'll make it more exclusive i don't care if the numbers are down you know to me it's it has to stay about community because i feel like in a way i i can take it to the next level with this event as like a stage two after my stream I just want to meet people. And I want to talk to them and see their face. That's that's any what it's about. Wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much for for joining me, Lex, in the very first episode of the Grid. This means that no other guest will be able to take the hand King Four offsuit. Yeah, that's that, that that was unlikely anyway. But uh, <laughs> no, it was uh, it was it was my pleasure really, and uh, I really enjoyed the questions too. Thank, thank you, you so much, Lex, and of course follow Lex on Twitch.tv at Lex Valthouse, and I'm sure you're going to keep us updated on Twitter and Instagram about the location and time of Lex Live. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna announce very shortly. Uh, so definitely stay tuned. Great, thanks again. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as the quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever busts. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.